text for this morning's message is found in 1 Peter chapter 2. And if you're using a uh, pew Bible, that's uh, page 1440. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. In A.D. 37, there was a little boy born in Italy named Lucius Domitius Ahenobarus. His mother's name was Agrippina the Younger. She married Claudius, the emperor of Rome, and then he adopted this little boy as his own and renamed him Nero Claudius Drusus Germanicus. The adoption and the name change was all a part of a scheme on the mother's part to see that the little boy become the emperor of Rome in place of Britannicus, Claudius' natural biological son. In A.D. 54, when Nero was 17 years old, his mother arranged that her husband Claudius be poisoned to death and Nero was proclaimed emperor of Rome. His reign lasted 14 years, and then he committed suicide at the age of 31. During those 14 years, the first half was relatively stable and good because he was surrounded by advisors that were wise. Burrus, the chief and head of the Praetorian Guard, was a wise and stable man. And the most famous of all, Seneca, the Stoic philosopher, was a good counselor. But he was a selfish emperor and unstable and fearful and became paranoid of all the rumors of people wanting to kill him. And so in 55 A.D. he had his brother, half-brother Britannicus killed. In 59 A.D. he had his mother executed. In 62 A.D., he had his first wife, Octavius, executed, and Seneca, his trusted counselor, was forced to commit suicide. In 63 A.D., the apostle Peter arrives in Rome, probably, putting some pieces together there from Paul's letters and things we know from external sources and from his letter here. He arrives in Rome. Rome in those days among Christians had the code name Babylon. The reason it was called Babylon, we know that from Revelation. Three times it was called Babylon. The reason it was called Babylon is because the ancient Babylon in Mesopotamia was the place to which the people of God were taken into exile. It represented the big, strong, mighty, powerful coming together of the forces of evil in an urban, complex, anti-God And so, as that Babylon faded into obscurity, and the Christians looked around on their scene, where is the great whore? 
John calls it in Revelation, the great Babylon, Rome on her seven hills, was the embodiment of anti-Christian power and evil in the culture of that day. And so in chapter 5, verse 13, Peter says, the church, she who is in Babylon, sends you greetings. July 19, 64 A.D., the fire broke out in the southern provinces or regions of the city. And it burned for six days across the city. And when it was just about to go out, it broke out again in the north. And for three more days, it swept across the north of Rome. And when it was out, after about nine days, ten of the fourteen wards of Rome were leveled. And it was over. And there was an incredible frenzy in Rome. So much so that people began to rumor and spread rumors that Nero himself had set the fire both in the north and the south, in order that his maniacal desire to rebuild Rome in his own image and get a name for himself would be realized. And Nero saw this rumor spreading, and he looked around for a scapegoat. And he found it in the Christians. And he spread the rumor that the Christians started the fire, and the result for the Christian community was unspeakably horrible. Not for 30 years since the life of Jesus had anything like this happened so broadly to a Christian community. They were crucified in Nero's garden. They were sown, Tacitus, the historian tells us, they were sown into wild animal skins and fed starving dogs. They were impaled on stakes and dipped in flammable oil and planted in Pharaoh's gardens and burned all night long to give light in the night. And Peter was crucified in 64 A.D. Some traditions say upside down so that he would not be identical to the Lord Jesus Peter's letter that David read from was probably written sometime between 63 and 64, just before this great fire. He tells us throughout this letter of the persecution and the suffering of believers, but it doesn't look like what happened. And so in all likelihood, the letter was written before this terrible persecution broke out. But Peter, with prophetic accuracy in chapter four, sees it coming. And he writes in chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though something strange were happening to you. So the letter comes right out of the context of that kind of situation just before the persecution reaches its peak. Peter not only knew of Nero, he knew other leaders in the world as well. He knew of Pontius Pilate. He lived under Pontius Pilate most of his latter years there in Judea while he was ministering with Jesus. And he knew that this Pontius Pilate had, for no reason at all, washed his hands of Jesus, handed him over to be beaten, and turned him over to be crucified. He knew that's the kind of leader he was. He knew Herod Antipas in Galilee, who three years earlier had chopped off John the Baptist's head as a dancing prize. And then three years later had taken his purple robe and 
put it around Jesus and mocked him with his soldiers. He knew Herod the Great probably as a little boy growing up in Galilee and all the rumors that he had put every child in Bethlehem to death 30 years earlier. Peter did not grow up in a Christian nation. He did not grow up in a world where he had any naive notions that rulers were good people. He knew the depravity of the human nature and the utterly ruinous corruption that political power can bring. And into that world, he says, verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as to one in authority or to governors as sent by him. And verse 17 Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Unbelievable. Now, the point in drawing attention to Nero, Pilate, Herod is not to suggest that there is a Nero or Pilate or Herod in America today. The point is, if Peter could command the Christian community in that setting to submit themselves to that kind of leader, then how much more must I take seriously the command today to submit myself to Bill Clinton and Governor Cross? Even though they endorse and promote acts which I regard as immoral and barbaric, dishonorable. How do you honor a man who endorses dishonorable deeds? It's not a new question. Nero was a dishonorable man. So was Pilate. So was Herod. Both of them. And yet we have the command. So my question this morning is, how do I, as a pro-life Christian, honor President-elect Bill Clinton when I know that he supports the right to kill unborn children for any reason up to the point of viability, that's 23, 22, 21 weeks and falling every year, and he endorses the taking of those lives after the point of viability, if the woman says to her doctor, I will be emotionally traumatized by this birth. And the reason we know that that's what the president-elect believes is because he has pledged himself to endorse the Freedom of Choice Act, which is before the Congress. And if you want to read about it, there are papers out on the table there that will explain what's in the bill. That bill, if passed, will put into federal statute and legislation laws that will make null all state laws which regulate abortion. It will put into federal law what is constantly being challenged at the Supreme Court level because of state laws and therefore end those disputes. This message is not intended to be political. But I'm learning some things in the last 12 years of preaching and trying to be just an obedient Christian, read the Bible and do what it says. In a pagan culture, I'm learning that that's political. To read the Bible and do what it says is political. Whether you want it to be or not. To read 
the Bible and to do what it says in public, to follow your conscience as it's informed with biblical principles, will bring you into social, legal, and political conflict in this culture. For example, never before in my life have I been forced to leave a restaurant because of my pro-life views. But just a few weeks ago with another pastor in a restaurant nearby, he was recognized, perhaps we were recognized, as being involved in pro-life demonstrations over at at, uh, uh, Robbinsdale. And they said, we've had bad experiences with you and we're not going to serve you here. And as we were leaving, the proprietor, with fire in her eyes, said, you get out of my restaurant, you woman haters. All that for just praying, walking in front of Robbinsdale Abortion Club. To be an obedient Christian will increasingly in America bring discrimination and persecution against you. You cannot help but be political, social. And have legal consequences if you will be obedient. The aim of this message is not political. The aim is to be theological, biblical, and ethical because the question is forced upon me like it never has been before from chapter 2, verse 17. Honor Bill Clinton, who holds, in my judgment, dishonorable and barbaric views. So I have a problem. We have a problem. That's the issue. The issue isn't to be political. The issue is how can I be biblical? How can I be obedient to that verse? What our future president endorses is not the right to scrape a few fetal cells off the wall of the uterus. What he endorses is that human beings who have a beating heart, who give an EKG reading, who have brain waves, who grasp with their little fingers, who suck their thumb, who respond to pain, who carry all the chromosome genetic makeup of humans rather than any other being, may rightfully, for any reason up to the point of viability, be killed by dismemberment. That's what he believes. And that which I described is an eight-week-old fetus. You can't see that picture, but there are a lot of these out there. This is the best little brochure that I have ever seen for pro-life. It comes from Dobson, pro-life, focus on the family, because it has the description of the baby at every stage with pictures. And it's not a big, expensive book. We'll give them to you free if we don't run out. And we'll get more if we do. That eight-week-old fetus, virtually no abortions are done before seven or eight weeks. It's not medically advisable. But to get a real handle on what Bill Clinton really believes about abortion, you have to realize that not only does that little child, get no protection. But this one doesn't either. This is 11 or 13 weeks. With that head, 
Eyes, nose, legs, arms. No protection whatsoever. Most abortions probably are done on babies almost this size. But that's not all. At 20 weeks, the baby looks like this. I'll show you the whole thing here. This is the womb, actual size. And he's snuggled in there. And the reason it looks so small is because his feet are up to his chin and his arms are all folded in. If you unfold this baby out to a standing position, he's about 10 inches long. Now, this baby cannot yet quite survive outside the womb. And therefore, we've lost a couple in this church this size. And I've seen them. I've seen them in their mother's hands. Bill Clinton believes you do not need any reason but sex selection, birth control, to go into a womb and cut this baby to pieces. That's how they kill them. They cut them to pieces. If you're sitting there right now, as some of you are, really angry at me, <clears throat> really not believing at all what I'm saying, feeling like it shouldn't be said, then the problem you're going to have to wrestle with in this service is very different than my problem. But not entirely different. My problem is, I believe that's barbaric. I believe that's wicked, profoundly evil. And I'm called upon to honor that man who is, from his point of power, going to try to remove the protection of that baby. You now must wrestle with how to honor me for preaching that falsehood. Because verse 17 not only says, honor the king, it says, honor all men, including pastors who preach falsehood. So the issue is very much the same for both of us. And so you're feeling like walking out right now. People always walk out when I preach on abortion. Though, in saying this, I might have stopped it in the first service. I hope that you will stay there knowing that I know you're there. And that what I say about my struggle, you will translate into your struggle about how to honor me. So that there can be talk and not obscenities. That's not my issue. I believe what I say is true. I believe it's biblical. And I believe it will triumph in the end. But I know that there are people here who are very angry right now that they had to come in here and they didn't know this was going to happen to them and they don't stand for this and they wish they weren't trapped right now. That's okay. I know you're here. You're not trapped. You have integrity. What I want to do is give you eight answers to the question, how should I, John Piper, or you, if you're pro-life, honor the president-elect. Number one. I'm just going to address these to Bill Clinton. And so many people at the door after last service said, why don't you put that in a letter form and get 1,200 people to sign it? 
and just send it to him. So that's what I'll probably do. So what you're going to hear for the next 10 minutes or so is a letter to the president, which maybe you'll have a chance to sign if you want to. We will honor you, number one, Mr. President, by humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God, according to 1 Peter 5, 6, and acknowledging that we ourselves, we pro-life Christians, are sinners and in need of mercy and forgiveness from God. We are not infallible. We are open to new light on this and every issue. We are not the final judge of you or anybody. God is. We stand on level ground with you before the cross, supplicants of mercy and longing to be obedient to the King, Jesus. We honor you by humbling ourselves with you under God as fallible sinners who need salvation and forgiveness. Number two. We honor you, Mr. President, by acknowledging that you are a man created in the image of God and distinct from all the other beings on the face of the earth. James 3, 9. You are not a mere animal. You have the glorious potential, like all humans, of being a child of God, if you are not already. And shining like the sun in the kingdom of our Father forever and ever. And we honor you as an utterly unique human being created in the image and likeness of the living God with untold potential. Third, we will honor you, Mr. President, by acknowledging that government is God's institution, God's creation. He wills that there be leaders like presidents and governors. You are in power by divine appointment, and we honor that. Romans 13.4 says, you are God's servant for our good. And it grieves us that you are not going to stand up for the good of the unborn, the most weak, innocent, helpless group of Americans. Nevertheless, we have seen from Somalia that bad government is better than no government. And that the absence of some laws to protect some citizens is better than the absence of all laws which give protection to nobody. And therefore, we honor your stabilizing role. And in this sense, we count you, Mr. President, a blessing from God. Fourth, we will honor you by submitting to the laws of the land and of the state, wherever they do not conflict with our higher allegiance to Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords and President of presidents. We will submit to laws that take away our right to choose to go 75 miles an hour. We will submit to laws that take away our right to choose to keep our lights off while our windshield wipers are on. We will submit to laws that take away our right to choose to drive without a seatbelt. We will submit to laws that take away our right to choose to fish without a license. We will 
submit to laws that take away our right to choose to make loud noises in the middle of the night. We will submit to laws that take away our right to choose to keep our kids out of schooling. We will submit to laws that take away our right to choose to send them to school without DPT shots. We will submit to laws that take away our right to choose to use leaded gasoline. We will submit to laws that take away our right to choose not to pay taxes. We will submit to laws that take away our right to choose to smoke on the other side of the restaurant. Because we know, Mr. President, that governments exist to take away the right to choose. We will submit to your laws. But, Mr. President, according to 1 Peter 2.13, we do not submit for your sake. We submit for the Lord's sake. He created the government. He wills that it be stable and exist. He wills that Christians be humble and submissive and not recalcitrant and stubborn. We will submit, not because you have power, but because our King Jesus says, go back in to this foreign and alien land and submit wherever you can for my sake and bring me glory. Yet, Mr. President, our submission is an honor to you because under God, from God, you bear the authority to enforce these laws. Fifth, we will honor you, Mr. President, by not withdrawing into little communes of disengaged isolation from American culture. We admit we're tempted. But according to 1 Peter 2.15, We will honor you by trying to do as much good as we possibly can in America for the cause of the unborn, for the cause of the unwanted born, and for the cause of women in distress, so that when we call upon you to join us in this, it will not be with hypocrisy, and it will not seem insolent to you that we have called upon you to join us in doing good to the unborn. The Bible says in verse 15, it is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Mr. President, we want to honor you by joining you in doing as much good as we can. Sixth, we will honor you, Mr. President, by opposing your position as long as we can with nonviolence instead of violence, with reasoning instead of rocks, with rational passion instead of screaming, with honorable speech instead of obscenities, with forthright clarity of language instead of dodging the tough realities and tough words, with evidence instead of authority, and with scientific portrayals of life instead of authoritarian blackouts. We will honor you by a relentless effort to put truth and not mere emotion before you in the White House as long as you're there. Seventh, we will honor you by expecting from you straightforward answers to straightforward questions. We would not expect this from a hypocrite or a con man or a chimp. We expect it from an honorable man. For example, Are you willing to explain why a baby's right not to be killed is less important than a woman's right not to be pregnant? Explain it to us, Mr. President. Or are you willing to explain why most cities 
have laws forbidding cruelty to animals, but you oppose laws forbidding cruelty to human fetuses. Are they not at least animals? Explain it to us with forthright, open, public words. Or are you willing to explain why government is unwilling to take away the so-called right to abortion on demand, even though it harms the unborn child? Yet government is increasingly willing to take away the right to smoke, precisely because it harms innocent non-smokers, killing 3,000 of them a year by cancer and 40,000 a year by cardiac and other diseases. Isn't it remarkable that we are moving towards such remarkable control in removing rights to choose in some areas and we will not touch the right to choose that kills? If you say, Mr. President, that of course everything hangs on the fetus being a human child or not, are you willing to go before national television with this baby in your hand and hold it up to the camera in the oval room and explain to us why this is not a baby? Are you willing to unfold the legs so that we can see the exact length and hold it up and let the camera zoom in on the face and the eyes and the ears? Are you willing to even show it in the womb with the contemporary scientific truthful data we have about its life? and the way it responds to being touched, and the way it responds to sound, and then explain to us why all of that is irrelevant to us. And this baby can have his head chopped off, squished, his legs pulled off, and that is not a problem. Or worse, Mr. President, are you willing to come to Minneapolis and go to the hospital with me where this baby is being held in the arms of its mother after the miscarriage, look her in the eye and say, this is not now nor ever was it a child. Why are you crying? Perhaps, Mr. President, you have good answers for all of these, and we will honor you by expecting you to defend your position forthrightly in the public eye. You have immense power as President of the United States to wield it against the protection of the unborn without giving a public accounting we regard as a dishonorable thing to do and therefore, we expect better. And finally, Mr. President, number eight, we will honor you by trusting that the purpose of our sovereign and loving God to defend the fatherless and contend for the defenseless and exalt the meek will triumph through your presidency. And to that end, we're going to pray for you day by day. I hope that you will fill out sometime the insert in the bulletin and give yourself some action. I really believe that President Clinton's election is a step towards the triumph of the pro-life cause. Just like Joseph's being sold into slavery in Egypt was a step towards the preservation and deliverance of the people of Israel. If you don't have the imagination to see how that's going to happen, leave it to God. But let's pray.
Almighty God and Heavenly Father, those of us who have the heart for it right now, lift our hearts and unite to say, would you please change the mind and the heart of President-elect Bill Clinton? The heart of the king is like a river in the hand of the Lord. You turn it wherever you will, according to Proverbs 21. Would you take the river of emotion and will that flows from the heart of Bill Clinton, transform its root, and cause it to flow in paths of life for the unborn as well as the born? Beneath that, Lord, I pray that across this land there would be a cultural macro shift of assumptions, that life is not cheap, that sex is not to be done with such license that you can end its consequences with the simple surgical procedure that takes a life. That stores like condom kingdom are not a symptom of wholesome freedom, but a symptom of dissolution, destruction, and barbaric anarchy in the end. And I pray, O oh God, that beneath that you would move across America and establish your rightful reign in the hearts of men and women far and wide, and let there be revival, Lord, in the churches. Put the Lordship of Jesus forth as the most all-consuming passion and power of the people who name the name of Jesus, and may we walk in righteousness and justice all our days. O Lord God, bring quickening and awakening to this land before it is too late, I pray, and magnify the worth of your Son and let it move in transforming and reforming our culture and our government and our laws. In Jesus' name, amen.